Hi, and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. This is the first episode of the year 2020. It's the day after my birthday, and I ended up taking a slightly longer hiatus than I had intended to over Christmas. I hadn't intended to take a hiatus at all, let's be frank, but I got so sick and uh, was still you know, working quite hard on the launch of The Last Post, the daily spin-off from The Bugle, which I'm hosting from an alternate universe. It's a lot of fun. Uh, and an enormous amount of writing. I don't think I, I don't think I really like viscerally understood how much until I started doing a daily podcast that is entirely made up, even more writing than is involved in the Bugle, which is satirical but based on reality, um, and then also sidekicking for Andy Saltzman's Soho show. So I was basically too sick to do the podcast. That is enough of me apologising. The guest for the podcast today is Kate Smirthwaite who asked to be on the podcast when she said she was coming out to Perth to do a, um, a run at the Perth Fringe. She asked if she could come on Tea with Alice and uh, I looked her up and it was, it was an interesting thing because she is a very public figure and a publicly controversial figure, which is something that I was a little wary of asking someone who is known for having these kind of uh, strong opinions um, onto this podcast which is about not strong opinions specifically about about uncertainties and uh, then I had a chat with her and realized that she is absolutely capable of having a, a nuanced conversation um, that acknowledges the complexities of reality and is not necessarily um, always performing a particular sort of political stance so I enjoyed having this conversation I enjoyed revising my opinion uh, if I had an opinion or am I uh, revising my wariness of um, somebody who is known for having strong opinions. Um, and we had a delightful cup of tea. You might hear in my voice that I'm still at that point very sick, but she did me uh, the credit of coming, uh, she did me the favour of coming to my house so that I didn't have to go out or move <laughs> at all. <laughs> and... Uh, we had a lovely chat, so I hope you enjoyed listening to the podcast as much as I enjoyed uh, having the conversation that you are about to hear. Um, please email me at alicerfraser at gmail.com or message me on patreon.com slash alicefraser. Thank you to all the people who came on board for Christmas or for my birthday. What a lovely gift um, your support is. It makes it possible for me to do what I do, and it genuinely made it possible for me to... <laughs> turn down more work while I was sick so that I could do the things that I had to do and not be forced to go out to the middle of nowhere and and do a gig for not enough money while genuinely um, extremely ill. Uh, so enough about that. I, I, it's boring to hear people talk about how sick they are, so I won't do that anymore. Um, tweet me at alliterative, A-L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I-V-E. Let me know what you think of the last post. It does have advertising which um, is sort of the deal if you're going to put out something that is that much work and you know has production team and all of that. Uh, we decided that we would have advertisers, which is not something that I've done before. You know, obviously I don't have advertisers for Tea with Alice. It's supported entirely by voluntary subscriptions to the Patreon. Um, but uh, having advertising is an interesting thing. I did a few hard no's. I said no guns no drugs, uh, various other things that I didn't particularly want in those advertising slots. Um, but there seems to be good feedback for the last post other than for the ads, which I'm afraid uh, it's not that I can't help 
so much as I wouldn't be able to do the show without those ads. But I can promise you there will be no ads on Tea with Alice unless there's something that I really want to tell you about and then I probably wouldn't ask for money to tell you about it. So that, I'm talking too much because it's been a while since I had a chat with you. I've missed talking to you. Um, but I will see you next week. We'll talk again next week. We are back to regular scheduled podcasting. Thank you for sticking with me. I hope we have a wonderful 2020. I hope you had a lovely Christmas and a lovely New Year. And if you didn't, that this year will be good um, and positive and interesting and engaging. That's enough from me. I'll talk to you next week. You're having tea with Alice. So, first of all, who are you and what are you drinking? Uh, so, hi, I'm Kate Murthwaite and I'm drinking tea, which Alice has made me, and it's very nice. I, I'm quite a tea drinker, so... I like tea. Mm. I think I think tea is... I don't want to be... I don't want to start this fight, but I think tea is better than coffee. Uh, yeah, I don't drink coffee unless it's like an affogato. I like the smell of coffee. I like the smell of coffee. It's more the, the, like the process of coffee. I don't find as enjoyable as the process of tea. For me, though, the thing about tea is the warmth. It's honestly not even the teaness that I like. I like continually drinking warm liquids all day because it keeps me warm. Yeah. Um, and if you have coffee, it's way too strong. You can't keep drinking that all day. But you can make really weak milky tea and just keep, yeah, cup yeah. after cup after cup. I mean, I literally came here from a cafe where I had a tea. And you're like, do you want a tea? And I'm like, yeah, I want a tea. I want a tea. And, um, then, and then you can also just... Like you can mix it up, so you can have tea that's like just ginger, mm-hmm. or yeah, if it's late, you can have you can have sleepy herbal tea of some sort. Sleepy herbal tea, or you can you can literally just throw some leaves into a pot. Like I've only once been out teed in my whole life. Oh yeah. I um, there's a lovely comedy club in Ipswich called Jokers, and one of the other acts gave me a lift there, so I brought a thermos flask full of tea for the journey, thinking this would keep me nice and warm on the journey. Uh, in some comedian's old drafty car and then I got there and there's a woman who works there and I think she's called Doreen but I might be wrong apologies if she is a f- avid listener to your podcast and, and doesn't recognize herself um, <laughs> and she get I get there and she's like would you like a cup of tea and I still would love one and um and she said well just let me know if you want another one anytime during the night and I said oh Doreen you'll never out tea me like you know just just uh, anytime you're making a pot like bring me a cup and it'll be gone by the time you get back so sure enough, I was emceeing, I go on stage, I do the opening set, I come off, there's another tea waiting for me, brilliant, I drink that, and then I have another one during the interval, next section again, I'm on stage, I come off, there's another cup of tea for me there, and <laughs> like final section, doing the thing, wrapping the show, there's another cup of tea there, and I was like, brilliant, 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 and I came off stage at the end of the night, and she was just putting a cup of tea down, and I was like, oh, Doreen, you are brilliant, that is amazing, final cup of tea before we get on the road, and then she looked around, and she handed me back my thermos, and she went, and I filled that up for the journey, <laughs> and I was like, oh, exactly, brilliant, I made to stop six times for the bathroom, but it was totally worth it. <laughs> I mean, yes, there is nothing like tea to remind you that you are just a series of tubes yeah it's uh it's quite grounding in Mm -hmm. that way um what have you been wrestling with of late wrestling with the thing that's annoyed me the most at the moment is um and it's so new that i don't know that i'm going to articulate this very well but that's kind of the point right after the election uk election and um and the you know the team i was backing didn't win there's been a lot of reaction of like, um, well, their policies must be terrible. Well, people just don't want this stuff. And I feel like I feel like there's a real issue of people going, well, if this isn't popular, 
then then we, we've got to provide something else. Like, you, you know, like just because a lot of people think something doesn't make it true. Yes. Is what I'm trying to get at. Is like people yes. are like, there's a lot of people, well, evidently people didn't want socialism. And you're like, yeah, but it still factually would stop people from dying. So I'm still allowed to want it, even if it doesn't, it's, even if it's not a popular choice. Yes, it's, it's the algorithm format. I think the algorithm is the thing that is informing that. Like structure of the nature of algorithms, which is to give you more of what you want. Mm-hmm. And this was like, I think the mistake Google made out of the gate. Mm-hmm. was to give you things based on number of visits, mm-hmm. not on any other kind of metric of respectability or reputability or mm-hmm. authority. That's so, really interesting, yeah. And then you get that on, on YouTube, you can get that on Twitter, you get that on, and then those algorithms themselves are skewed by bots. Mm-hmm. So, for example, YouTube, you get a particular path from, for example, like if you're interested in conspiracy theories, which a lot of people I know are, mm-hmm because it's interesting and it's fun to think of the world in a different way. Yeah. Almost inevitably a conspiracy theory YouTube video will lead you by direct clicks to Nazism. Oh, interesting. And that's because bots follow the next video. Mm. And so there's this cascade effect where that pathway gets reinforced, not even by people, but then it shapes the way that people think. Interesting. If you look me up on YouTube, what you tend to find, I mean, I've got lots and lots of videos on YouTube. I've got a whole uh, you know, video series up there, The Music Cape, but, um, but you will very, very quickly find yourself led to videos about how I'm a terrible person and like all the personality disorders that I've got. And also, weirdly, recently there have been a couple up that are just like sort of compilations of clips of me on TV shows, but zoomed in on my boobs and my legs. Like, you just like, oh, look look at this. Like, this, you know, we've we've taken somebody making some important political points. We've made something you can jerk off to. Um, and you're like, ah, but obviously that, like, I would like to think that people aren't Googling my name because they're like, what can we masturbate to this evening? I mean, that's not, no. Like, no. like, like, there are people who are going out there to produce material for that purpose, and I'm not one of them. It's definitely not what, um, but yeah. But sort of taking a, a step, like, onto the structural side of that... Like what's informing these ways of behaving and these ways of mm. moving through the world and these ways of thinking. Mm. That popularity thing, mm. it's so wrong. The idea of what a politician is meant to do is not to please people. Yeah, they're not supposed to be puppets where we, the public, are sort of like the marionettes that Yeah, they're meant to represent the it's sort of the difference between uh, the public interest and what the public is interested in. Mm-hmm in terms of, you know, inter- defending news media, for example. Mm-hmm. The news uh, has exemptions from certain laws, things like libel or things like uh, defamation, if it's in the public interest. Mm-hmm. In some instances, privacy laws. If, they're, if you're in a country mm. that has privacy laws, the media will have an exemption if it's in the public interest, which is not to say what the public is interested in. Yeah, so those are very way. different things, aren't they? What the public is interested in, which is often, you know, very sensationalised yeah. human interest stories, and what is in the public interest, which would be to tell people about climate change and, you know, inequality and, like, real issues. Yeah, and so then you have this other, this additional thing that I think has slid over into politics where we see or we pretend that politicians are meant to be, when we say they're our representatives, they are representing our interests. They're meant to represent our interests, they're not meant to be a representation of us. They're not meant to be a blown-up cartoon figure of the yeah. people. And interestingly, because I do tons and tons of media interviews and debates, and so often, 
like what I want to say is, you know, this is really important. This is a real issue. And what the question I'm getting asked isn't like, you know, how do we know about this and what can we be doing about it and all this kind of stuff. But the question is, why do so many people not want to get involved? So people are asking me, like, why do so many young women not identify with feminism? And I'm like, well, I mean, like, I can't. There's media messages and there's this and there's that. But like, even if even if everybody in the world thinks feminism is terrible, it doesn't mean equality's happened. Yeah. It's it's like many, many people, and if we, we're looking for evidence that many people may be misinformed, I mean, look at the scale of organised religions, of which only one, and arguably none, can be true. Um, and again, like, you know, you've got all the obvious ones like flat earth and climate change denial and, and this kind of stuff. But um, just, yeah, that idea that if enough people believe it, it must be a reasonable, credible opinion that we must therefore take seriously. And because we can't then ask, well, why do you believe that? Because the answer is, uh, just felt like it. Um, we have to ask, why do so many people believe it? Mm. Why do so, so what, many people What is it that people who know the truth have failed to do in communicating that truth? Yeah, which is, the, which is an interesting question. What, what, and that kind of brings me back to my, like, my obsession always, which is what, what are the ways, what are the patterns, what are the formats that people have been cultivating in their minds? I was brought up Buddhist. I believe that you cultivate particular mm. patterns in your mind. Like if you let yourself be angry a lot, it's easier to be angry mm-hmm. and, and all of those things. So what are these patterns that we're establishing in our minds that allow us to uh, to know what we think about something because someone we like thinks that? Like you can, you can yeah. assume that they're right about something, that you don't need to investigate it because they're your kind of person. I did it years ago in a show I did in 2000 and I'm going to say 13, but I may be, I may be out by a year. Um, I did a show called My Professional Opinion, which was about going on TV and radio debate shows. And in it, I talked a lot about whether you can ever change people's minds, because actually there's a lot of evidence that says you can't. Mm. that says, um, you know, if you argue with people, they just decide they hate you. They don't decide that, oh, well, you know, they, you've made some interesting points. And I used to say um, that, you know, the, the downside of doing these debates is that they, the, the clips end up on the internet and in the entire history of the internet, nobody is, you know, the, the internet adds its opinion and that, that the entire history of the internet, that opinion has never been, I thought both sides made interesting points. Like, because that opinion is the only thing that has never been written on the internet. <laughs> Everybody on the internet, the capital letters, die, 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 you know. Um, but in that show, um, First of all, I did a thing where I read an article that I claimed was by a Daily Mail writer, uh, Richard Littlejohn, and um, and slagged it off. And then I read another article that I said that I'd written. And then later on, I revealed that, in fact, it was exactly the other way around. And that, in fact, the, the article I'd attributed to the Daily Mail, I had written it myself. And there were points of it. I mean, I'd written it a lot several years earlier. And there were points of it that I no longer entirely believed. But, you know, there was like, you know, the general thrust of it I agreed with. And um, and then the other piece had actually been written by the Daily Mail. And, you know, the fact is that even the Daily Mail might make good points sometimes, but um, but audiences would always boo the Daily Mail story and cheer the story that they thought I had written. And then when and then were very discombobulated when I revealed that, in fact, it was the other way around. And actually they might disagree with me on some things and they might agree with the Daily Mail on some things. And I did do quite a lot of sort of looking into um, how to how people form opinions and the, and the, and what came out of it that I thought was interesting was that you're almost never going to change the mind of the person you're arguing with um, but 
what you can affect is the opinions of other people in the vicinity who don't yet have an opinion on that subject. Mm. Um, and yeah, and so, and so like that's why it's worth having the argument because the see, I think I I don't know, maybe I am naive, but I do think maybe not in an argument. I do think there are ways of changing people's minds. Maybe not necessarily changing their opinions, mm-hmm. but changing the way they think. And and I, I, I'm kind of idealistic about the way that comedy mm-hmm. can do that, mm-hmm. even, even just shifting someone's attitude or feelings or approach the next Well, there's time. some science behind this, right? There's some science behind this. There's an amazing piece of research out of the US that shows that jokes have a bigger impact on people's attitudes than facts do, mm-hmm. which is terrifying. Like it's, it's terrible. It, it's, it's awful. That, it's and awful. stories, anecdotes and stories. I have yeah. a friend who used to be a story uh, finder mm. for one of these big charities. Uh-huh. So she would go to terrible places and meet people in the worst conditions and find like the cutest, most miserable kid. Mm-hmm. Because it wasn't enough to tell people that 10 million children were starving. You had to pick one kid mm-hmm. and tell that one story because that made the difference. Mm. But, yeah, what you think... Yeah, and um, yeah, it's, and it's really interesting because also you're playing into this, like, confirmation bias, which I'm yeah. sure you've, you've, you've discussed before, but this... Um, I would tell people that... And it's true that I did a benefit one time for the big issue and I'm like... I don't know, I think that's a great organisation, they help homeless people, um, you know, they raise money and whatever. And then actually this benefit that I did was really badly run and mm. really disorganised and it, and it really didn't, you know, like all, the, like all the things that you thought were great about it just weren't happening. And I mean, I'm sure they do much more better organised events these days, this is quite a while back, but it just, um, yeah. And, and then I'd explain how terrible this event was and how the money didn't seem to be going to the right place and this, that and the other. And I'd be like, now, hands up, who thinks the big issue is a terrible organisation? And nobody puts their hand up. Yeah. Like, nobody's like, oh, actually, now you've mentioned it, I actually, I, can, I think maybe I'd rather support a different organisation. Um, but but people, people's opinions don't change in that, quite in that way. My, I, I did change my mind once. There is one, there is one quite, like, like big time that I, that I have definitely changed my opinion. I think other times it's been more subtle over a period of time, but... In 2013, um, yeah, I appeared on um, Question Time as one of the panellists and I said loads of stuff that I thought was terribly important. And, um, and then um, they were asking about uh, what we should do about flooding in the UK and whether we should continue to dredge rivers in areas where we have done so historically and where local housing is at risk. Of flooding, and I was like, "Yeah, if we've done it in the past, we should keep doing it." Blah 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 blah. You know, like people's houses are at risk, and we've got to stop them flooding. Da 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 da. And then um, George Romney, the Guardian uh, columnist, wrote to me and said, "Yeah, I agree with everything else you said, but actually, there's a much better way of dealing with flooding." And then he sent me links to all these articles about how actually what we should do is is reforest these regions um, because actually when you dredge rivers it actually it works short term but in the long term it makes things worse and when you plant trees the root channels that they create actually drain water much more effectively drain it away much deeper um, and like it just solves the problem in a long-term way and blah 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 blah. and then now whenever I get the chance I'm like oh I've got a better answer about flooding I know the, I know the good answer now I've got the clever response now um, I can't imagine that was a thing you felt very strongly about or that was kind of core to your identity at the time. Yeah, and it wasn't like I thought, oh, well, 
silly idiots they should drown or anything you know yeah, like there yeah. was a change of opinion about I still think we should do this but now I think there's a much better way of doing it I think we should challenge that problem and now I've realized that there's a much cleverer way of doing it and that dredging rivers isn't really a very clever or, or good solution to that problem um yeah but it wasn't like yeah it's interesting because I think some of my uh, I don't want to you know land the minute but I think some of my relatives many of whom are no longer with us but I certainly older relatives of my family who had you know, racist and homophobic views that, you know, it's not in the least bit surprising for their generation. But there was a sense that that in a lot of cases their their opinions sort of gradually changed. Yes. Not they didn't sort of suddenly wake up one day and go, oh, actually I quite like brown people after all. They there was like a sort of gradual erosion of those views. Almost as though that sort of way that the tide rises and you can't Yeah, well I think it's a sort of there are interesting ways that people have ideas now and these kind of assumptions that you grow up with maybe mm. they're almost easier to shift mm-hmm. because they're just things you haven't examined they're not things that you you don't think I am a proud racist you think oh that's a bit weird and different and you know not sure how I feel about them and their food is a bit weird and then mm-hmm. you meet those people and you realize they're people and you realize that there's a whole a whole lot of different ones and then yeah. your idea shifts but if you're like a proud racist and that's part of your identity then you can't shift it as easily maybe I don't know yeah but I mean I think I think I even knew people who were who were really who really were you know quite overtly racist and and felt very strongly that some people didn't have as much right to this country as others and and but somehow the you know the tide kind of shifted shifted and and rose and and I think even with the benefit of hindsight they would admit oh I used to think this but now I think this and I'd like to say it was about meeting people but I don't think it really was because I mean for example my my grandma who I I love to pieces and and miss terribly um I mean, she always, she was very clear that she just didn't like people who weren't white. You know, that was always her thing. But then as she met people who weren't white, um, she'd be like, oh, I don't like Indians, or apart from that Ashy guy that I work with. But it was never like, now I've met Ashy, I've decided that all Indian people are not a problem because he's lovely and I've realised that my attitudes are completely out of date and whatever. She was like, oh, well, yeah, it's apart from Ashy. And then I had a Japanese boyfriend. She's like, oh, I don't like foreign people apart from him. And like, uh, to, to, like but it, she was carving out these little exceptions, but I don't feel like that's where the, the change came. The change came more from it just like it just being the tide of public opinion that nobody talks like that anymore and those attitudes you just don't hear them anymore and yeah but well, maybe I, think, I don't know. I think the exceptions thing is super interesting when it comes to the current wave of opinions and opinions about opinions mm-hmm. because I think that's mainly how people operate mm-hmm. so for example when it comes to uh, the recent thing about JK Rowling being mm-hmm. supporting a woman who was transphobic at work or putting up a tweet in support yeah. of that this idea that it matters deeply to know somebody's opinion about about the rights of trans people mm-hmm. and that that changes your attitude to them, your enjoyment of their work, your engagement with them. But this is the question. Is, it, is, this, is this opinion affecting people? And I think that's the... It's like there's so many branches of this. I'm not explaining it very well. One think- thing is... 
if you can express your opinion on the internet, it can hurt a lot of people mm-hmm. in a way that before your grandmother's opinion about a race didn't hurt that race. No. And if every individual person of another race that she really engaged with was an exception to her racism, her racism was a non-issue because every time it met reality, it bent. Mm. And so the underlying opinion that people of other races are inferior in X, Y or Z way doesn't matter. It's completely irrelevant. It doesn't matter. It has no impact on the world. But now it sort of seems to. Well, and it's interesting because as well, like, I mean, I'm sure it did have an impact on the world in that, you know, the people around her would pick up these opinions or these pieces of language, which then might get used in ways that are hurtful and, and damaging and so on. I don't think that she's that it's sort of that she's sort of magically insulated from it but with the sort of rising change of public opinion she reached a point where when she expressed those opinions everybody around her went oh stop it no yeah. actually don't say that that's actually not okay we all don't think that da, 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 da. Mm. um whereas if if she you know if she was in her 20s now expressing those opinions she would express them online and therefore she would attract the you know, the other people around the world who have those same opinions. Yeah. And I think that's very true of the sort of, um, like, I feel like sexism and misogyny is a bit in the resurgence Mm. at the moment, that once upon a time you've got sort of young guys who, you know, couldn't get laid and they were all a bit frustrated about it and they're like, oh, women are rubbish, you know. And, um, and now, rather than being like, oh, well, don't worry, probably once you, you know, once you hit puberty, somebody will be interested in you, mate, I expect you'll be okay. Um, or why don't you learn an instrument? Yeah. Maybe, join a band? Yeah, maybe don't worry about it, da, 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 da. Instead of which, they're kind of immediately able to connect with somebody the other side of the world who's like, yeah, too right, I think women are terrible as well. And you've got this whole world of you know, incels and men's rights activists and uh, Mugtoes and all the... Um, I don't... Uh, Mugto is men going their own way and it's men who've decided that women are awful and they don't want anything to do with them. Oh, but, good. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, on behalf like of womankind, sure, bye men! <laughs> don't shut like... the door on your way out! We were... <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that's an interesting one, the idea that... And I wonder where that comes from this kind of resurgence of anti-feminist ideas? Well, I mean, I, I don't have a magic answer. I, I have um, some thoughts on the subject. One, this, this was fascinating. I did, I did a conference, and one of the other speakers was um, Caroline Criado-Perez, you know, the woman who got to the feminist campaign, who got Jane Austen on the banknote, got the statue of a suffragette in Parliament Square, a big feminist campaigner. And we were, it was actually a sort of conference for women who wanted to get into creative writing and, and um, that kind of thing. We were helping uh, people who wanted to get into that world with advice. And um, there were a lot of questions about the internet backlash that you can get from being a woman in the public eye. Mm. And, and somebody asked me, like, you know, what do you think? is behind this and I was sort of umming and prevaricating and then Caroline said and I thought this was incredibly insightful she said Kate you know the rape threats you get and I was like yeah and she's like how many of them are about your vagina and I was like none and she was like right they're all about your mouth and your throat and I was like yeah and she was like that is that is everything that we need to know about what's there like nobody is it's all about voices and silencing people and I think one of the things that's driving it 
and I, I'm and I'm no big expert, but I think one of the things that's driving it is this. What you might, I mean, I'm, I don't know if I use the word. It sounds a bit like I'm attacking things, but like this sort of very pornified culture that we live in. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not in the world of like, oh my goodness, there's a breast, put it away. Yeah, yeah. I'm offended. I'm, I'm all for erotica, and you know, I'm super sex positive and whatever. But we do live in a world where, when I was a kid, what was considered pornography these days would look normal in Game of Thrones. Like the shift on, and and what if you're actually looking for pornography in this day and age, it's something quite extreme, which, it, which brings us back to the algorithm. Yeah. The algorithm which privileges the new and the extreme and the most... Yeah, and what all of these, and, and inc- actually including even very mild um, TV and radio shows have in common, is that every guy has an attractive partner. At least one. In fact, the good guys get the girl in the end because they're nice, even if they're not super good looking or super buff or super lovely or smart or whatever. They get the girl in the end because they're the good guys. And the bad guys have sort of assorted supermodels lying around their house like pieces of furniture. (laughs) Um, And so there is this sense of like every guy is somehow supposed to have a hot girlfriend. And yet, of course, only, you know, whatever, like 5% of the female population fits into that, anything like that demographic. And even they, they're, they've been airbrushed by the time they get to TV. Um, and so guys quite reasonably feel like something's gone wrong, like they're missing out, they're being ripped off. Um, really, really tellingly, um, Giles Corran wrote an article in the Daily Mail several years ago, about women in comedy that of course got sent round and I'm sure in fact, I'm sure you had it stuffed in your inbox by well-meaning Almost relatives because yeah, um, when you're a woman in comedy nothing pleases you more than an article about why women can't be possibly do comedy for <laughs> reasons based on hashtag science right um yeah I can never read enough of such pieces um oh, I, yeah I have a thing about that but yes come back and um in it, in the article, Giles Corran claims that you know women don't really want to do comedy or are less capable at it but his underlying point is he says look at the um one point he says look at the top 10 comedy dvds for christmas um there's not a single one in there by a woman unless you count miranda like sorry freeze frame double take miranda is a woman like there's no but it's just that somehow in the deep dark recesses of giles corran's mind woman means thing i would like to have sex with that looks like a supermodel that is thin and attractive and yeah and glamorous and so on and so forth that's a criticism you come across relatively frequently in the online thing which is only ugly women want to do comedy well, yeah, and it, but and it just, think, he doesn't well, even count her as a woman. How many attractive male comedians are there? Exactly. I mean, who... Uh, but, uh, yeah, proportionately, I would say that... Yeah. What, what, what is that? But I always think about the biological argument for why men want to do comedy. And it makes a lot of sense. And it, I was, uh, you know, I'm quite happy to think of myself as an outlier. So when I first came across this argument, I think it was the Hitchens one. Mm-hmm. where I was like, oh, yeah, that seems like a fair enough point. Boys do use com- comedy competitively in the schoolyard as a way of playing status games, and, you know, there is that thing of trying to impress women by how smart you are, by making jokes, and, you know, you know it all that all makes sense. But then you think about the way that we make everything make sense. Like, we can always track back mm. a line that makes sense of something. You know, comedy is about community. Are not women better at community? Aren't women better at talking? Aren't women better at observing emotions? Aren't women 
better at manipulating people? Aren't women better at being looked at? Like if you you can allegedly we talk so much, we should be better at that and all this kind of stuff. And also this argument that like men would use comedy to impress women, and yet it's women who are somehow expected to dress up and wear makeup and you know and and go to all these lengths to impress men. So are we what? Like, like, there's that sort of like. If men are so desperate to impress women, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to sort of like throw any aggressive shade here. But if men are so desperate to impress women, they they could go to the gym. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, a lot of us put a lot of effort into it. Um, yeah. A, yeah, this idea of of it's very simple to track back from the opinion you hold to the reasons why you hold that opinion. Mm. And that's not necessarily why you hold the opinion at all. It's just that you feel something is right or you feel something is wrong. And then you can make the reasoning for it fit. Yeah, and this idea that I think is at the heart of it, that like we've created a, a culture, like a media culture, which these days we, we spend so little time talking to real people and so much time absorbing what comes off the TV and films and the, you know internet videos and so on. And so much of that culture that we absorb shows men and women and it shows a range of men and a tiny slice of women yes. that is not in any way representative. Which and even now, even now with this kind of massive expansion of diversity, is still so narrow. Yeah, 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 yeah. And also they have this idea that diversity is like, you know, you have one person who looks like a supermodel but is in a wheelchair, and then you have another person who is, you know, otherwise very much like a supermodel but is a size 14. Yeah. Um, but what you don't get is somebody who's like 83 in a wheelchair with a rash. It's like you, you know, just you can't have all those things. You can have one of those things. Pick one. Where is the rash representation on television? More rashes on TV. But um, it's sort of um, it's sort of um, it creates this world in which men feel like they have a you know they 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 they're looking for a relationship with a woman and they're actually discounting ninety percent of the female population. And I, to pick like a really sinister example, but the Santa Barbara shooter, remember Elliot Rogers, the Santa Barbara shooter, um, who was very heavily involved in this online world of, um, y- you know, women are the problem, blah, 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 um, and made a video saying very much that. He says in his video that he's going to go out and shoot women. Mm. That's literally what he says. He makes this video and then he goes out with a gun and he goes down the street and he goes past loads and loads of women. Mm. And then he gets to this sort of like yoga center um, and he ends up having to shoot some men even to get into it. Um, and then he shoots like young, pretty, blonde women. So he says he's going to shoot women. And then he misses the opportunity to shoot a large number of women. Because in his head, when he says women, he's not actually picturing women. Yeah. He's picturing this media stereotype of what women are like. And yeah, and we can't live up to it. And... And, and therefore men feel shortchanged by it. It's, I think, especially young guys who once upon a time, you know, well, you didn't, you know, you didn't get laid and so you stayed in the science fiction club and, you know. Well, in the same way as, as when you do a play, if you ever do a play at school or mm. like a project that lasts an extended period of time that has got, you know, a mixed demographic in it, you will always get a crush on one person in the cast. Mm-hmm. And it's because in your head you think these are my options. Yeah. And this is the best of my options. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to go after this person or I'm going to be in love with this person Mm -hmm. for the period of this play or whatever it happens to be. I think the nature of media and the nature of the internet is that people believe that they have this range of options that includes 
these incredibly, you know, Amelia Clark on Game of Thrones. Mm -hmm. And so then when they have to settle for a normal human being, who is their actual option, they feel like, well, that's wrong. Yeah. And, and the other thing that I think is super interesting about that is, um, is, is, I don't know, I was going to say something, but I've forgotten what it was. <laughs> My brain is so fried. Um, uh, we should wrap up in a bit, but uh, is there anything that you would like to plug or anywhere people can find you online or things that, that they would like or common misconceptions about you that you'd like to address? Oh, I mean, I'm not sure that there's any uh, super, I don't know, I'm not sure there's anything I need to address, um, although I'm not nearly as, uh, I don't know, I think a lot of people out there think that I'm quite terrifying, and I'm really not. I um, don't think I thought you were terrifying. No? Is there anything else you think I might be? I mean, I know that you are attacked a lot mm -hmm. for having strong opinions. Yeah. And I don't even feel like I have such outrageously strong opinions, really. Like, I'm very much in the world of, like, well, let's all express them and have a conversation kind of why thing. Don't, why do you feel, then, that you are used as a proxy for other women? Or for a group of women? Or for a mass of opinion? I think well, I mean, that's definitely problem. true. Um, but, I mean, and, and that's, that's largely because the media have decided that and I'm happy to go on air and I'm good at doing debates and stuff and, th and that's fair enough. I don't mind in that sense being being wheeled out as like Kate will now explain what's wrong with, you know, the Conservative government or organised religion or whatever. That's fair enough. Um, yeah, I think, I think that the difficulty is for me is that I'm very often put on air with people who are you know, extreme. I've been on shows with like Katie Hopkins and Jeremy Clarkson and people from UKIP and this kind of stuff. And so inevitably you have to be quite firm and quite clear and, you know, and they're saying stuff that is so far off the scale that I'm like, this is this is wrong and this is totally unacceptable. Um, and I think people assume that I'm that I'm like that at home. Mm. Do you know what I mean? That I'm like that all the time. That I sort of get home and I'm like, there's three reasons why we need cheese on toast in this house <laughs> now. And, and of course, that's not the case. And in fact, when I'm well, there are some really nice examples when I'm on air with people who I who I have a different opinion from, but not you know, sort of you know, not a million miles away, just like, oh, that's interesting. Because, I mean, I agree with you on this, but actually, um, you know, I can have a much more nuanced debate. But obviously there's no point in trying to have a nuanced debate when it's Katie Hopkins. Um, well, and, and then, although is... even then, sometimes she says something reasonable because that's the nature of stop clocks. Like, it does all roll back into one, yeah. Which I think is really... That maybe is an interesting thing. Maybe that's the thing I was going to mention before or that I was thinking about before. Mm. There's this argument, when you go back to women on television being beautiful, mm. the argument that you get from conservative thinkers, free market, libertarians, so on and so forth, is that television exists to sell advertising. Mm -hmm. People won't watch it if people aren't beautiful. You know, it explains itself. It perpetuates itself. It works on this economic system that requires beauty and attractiveness mm -hmm. to function. And therefore, it must be good. Because there's a demand for it, it must be good. And well, that's, this is fascinating. This, there's another whole show in this. Which brings us back to the beginning this, of the conversation. About, about whether we should give people what they want. Yes. And there is, we live in such a kind of, I want it now, give me what I want, you know, one click to access quite extreme pornography, for example, is like a classic example of this. 
And, you know, to reiterate, I'm not against nudity, but the rates of erectile dysfunction among men in their 20s and 30s have gone, in the last sort of 12 years, have gone from 2 to 3% to over 40%. And, like, what's changed in that period? Well, possibly, you know, nobody's drinking enough mineral water, but I think we all know the main thing that's changed over that period is the enormously widespread availability of quite... And, you know, and people are discovering this. I, um, I have a running joke that... Um, that because I'm a feminist in the public eye, I'm very well known for being sex positive and polyamorous and so on. People always come to me um, for sexual advice that I am in no way qualified to provide. And I always say, um, I, say I, I haven't got any advice, but just in case, uh, my general advice is, guys, uh, get more exercise and stop watching so much porn. It'll probably start working again. And women, uh, dump him. He sounds awful. <laughs> and that's like, if that advice doesn't work, go see someone with actual qualifications. But in my experience, a lot of the time, that's probably the advice you need. Well, um, it's, it's the thing. I mean, this is you versus, say, Katie Hopkins. That is not a discussion where anyone changes their mind. No. No one is coming in having their mind changed. There is a demand there for, and again, this kind of pornification, this extreme, exaggerated argument, mm. which is not an argument that happens in real life. You don't meet Katie Hopkins for a cup of tea she to talk about interesting ideas. Rude. You know what I yeah, mean? Because totally. if you did, then you would either not hang out or would you, you would find your ideas sort of meeting each other and engaging with each other and, and genuinely yeah. having some sort of production or productive mm. element. There's nothing that comes out of that conversation between oh, God, yeah. you and Katie Hopkins except maybe some memes. Yeah. Um, but and, it, but, and a tune-in after the break. Yeah, but I mean, I do think that, like, like what it does affect is that there are... It, it, it's For me, I always think that the people who've chosen to tune into this probably already have their opinion and they're just kind of there rooting for one side or another, but you've got to remember that in the background of where that's being played, there's, you know, their kids are playing in the background. There are other people in the back of the car waiting to get to their destination who are going... Oh yeah, immigration. What what is the the what is the date? You know what is that ha- doing? What is that a good thing? Is that a you know like that kind of like yeah. oh how how would that affect us? What's that got to do with who sh- who should that apply to? And so in a way, I think it's important to have those uh, arguments. Well, but it brings us back to this thing about giving people what they want. And I think um, so. Tim Miles. I don't know if you've ever worked with Tim Miles. Uh, wonderful, wonderful man. Um, comedy promoter who died um, earlier this year and um, he was he taught um, at um, university level on the subject of comedy he taught um, undergraduate performing arts students about stand-up comedy and he'd often have people come in and give guest lectures and writing comedy and improv and clowning and he taught it all at an academic level and wrote lots of books about the theory of comedy and and lots of really interesting things and papers and published a journal of comedy studies and um, And he said that one of the things that he thought was going wrong with academia is that these days it's so privatised and so universities and colleges are competing to get students in. And because they're competing to get students in, how do you get students in? So you say to them, um, firstly, it's going to be really easy. You won't have to do much work. And then you say to them, if you're having any problems, uh, you know, we'll help you. We'll help you get through it. And so weirdly, they're providing much less teaching and loads more like kind of support and um, you know helplines and contact us and I'm absolutely not against having you know helpline people who need a helpline I think that's a great idea but he was like we've created a situation in which we're pouring all our resources into 
um, helping people overcome mental health issues. And actually, he was like, I think one thing that would really help people to not develop mental health problems in the first place would be giving them challenging work that stretches them and putting them through a process where you're not great at everything, you don't find everything easy, you have to really study pretty hard and building skills in those areas. And he's like, and we, we're just we're just literally not allowed to do that anymore because that would be off-putting to potential students. And so we have to give potential students what they, inverted commas, want. Um, and it takes away from being able to be a bit more practical and, you know, like a, a non-privatised university can go, well, what do students need to learn? And Which this is, would be... You know, I mean, arguably, what the point of universities is to prepare people for the real world. Mm. It's the whole point of childhood, really, and, and yeah. school and all of that. And what you want to teach is resilience and skills. Yeah. And, and like, the ability to learn stuff is yeah. so important. And you also, you want to put students on a course where they don't find everything easy. Like, that's... Because life isn't easy, and there's lots of things that aren't easy, and... Uh, yeah, and, like, Genuinely, you just should find things hard. One of the reasons that I started doing comedy in the first place was because I was bad at it. Mm. And I wanted to learn how to get better at something I wasn't good at. Yeah. Because I was one of those kids who was good at stuff, mm. was talented and lazy. Mm-hmm. And it was that thing of, well, maybe this is not a good way to be. You yeah, I, I have a real policy of like, because again, I was like a, you know, straight eighties little academic thing um, who was good at more or less everything. And I've always been of the view that I have to go out, you know, once a week or whatever and do something that I'm not great at. If that's like, you know, oh, for a while I was doing belly dancing classes. I'm terrible. I haven't even got a freaking belly to wibble around. Like there's just, it's just, but it's like, and also I am that whole like, I don't know, like the, the sort of deliberately I did flamenco for a while. That, like, deliberately being sexy thing, I mean, I just find it cringe, super <laughs> cringe. Um, but it's really good to put myself out of my comfort zone. And the same goes for, like, doing a lot of sport, not just doing sport that I know I'm good at, but also doing sport that I don't know what I'm doing and I'm in at the deep end and trying to... Um, I've been doing some singing lately, which, again, is, like, definitely not my strong point. Um, but, I, yeah, I feel like it's really good for you to do something you're not uh, great at. But... Uh, I should I should plug all the things I yes, am great do at. Do plug all the things you're great at. All my work and efforts and everything I'm up to is always at katesmurthwaite.co.uk. And in particular, I have a video series called The News at Kate that people can sponsor on Patreon. But you don't have to sponsor me. You can come and have a look. And uh, how great is Patreon? It's great. Yeah, it um, it's the difference between me only being able to like go and take paid work for other people and me being able to once a week put out a video where I talk about what I think is important and share it and the more sponsors we have the more I can focus on that and um, and well hopefully we can get our production qualities a bit better as well and that would make it easier for me to get it out because at the moment we're uh, a little bit hamstrung because a lot of platforms won't share it unless it's filmed in super high def and professionally edited and all this kind of stuff and we're still going off an iPhone at the moment <laughs> um, and uh, yeah and then I I, um, I will be in Australia at the Perth Fringe um, for most of February at uh, Tiki's FK on James Street and then I have gigs back in the UK before and after that and they're all on my website 
Brilliant. Look it up at katesmithwaite.co.uk. Which is very patriotic of you, despite what hey, Katie Hopkins might think. Oh, well, it was one of those ones where .com would have cost me a lot more money. So <laughs> we just were like, yeah, I'm proud of the... I'm proud of being British. It all comes down to the money in the end. As long as you get my name right, you just have to put it into Google and it pops up. I'm still the most popular search search term on my own name, although it's a matter of time before it's uh, pornography and Nazis. <laughs> Thank you so much for having tea with me. My pleasure. Thank you for the tea.